It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. How about that? Phil Mickelson winning the PGA Championship yesterday at the advanced age of 50s, 50 years old. This is his sixth major on the Pro Golf Tour. I mean, people are just going nuts over this. Uh, You know, one of the things I like about golf, I mean, I'm not a golfer myself. I'm a tennis guy. But, you know, it's a game that you can play, that you can compete at a fairly high level, you know, even at uh, when you become a senior citizen. I mean, there aren't any 50-year-old quarterbacks out there. There aren't any 50-year-old baseball players. I think they might have been a knuckleballer or two back in the day. You don't see many people uh, suiting up for NBA games at the age of 50, but in golf you can do it. And Mickelson uh, was down at Kiowa Island. He built this big lead. He hung on to win. And uh, apparently after, you know, the 18th hole when he was the winner, uh, thousands of fans just engulfed him on the fairway. You don't usually see that at American golf tournaments. And he came out and gave the thumbs up. So I think a lot of duffers out there of many ages uh, cheering for Phil after this feat. I uh, hope you had a great weekend. Hope you had a chance to see Media Buzz. Uh, I think my favorite segment on the show was when I had a conversation with Sally Quinn, uh, the longtime journalist, uh, columnist, author, uh, for the Washington Post, you know, made her name at the style section, the wife of the late Post editor Ben Bradley. And she wrote a piece that appeared yesterday in the Washington Post magazine. Kind of stunned me because if there's anybody in this entire Beltway culture that kind of symbolize the Washington social circuit, the D.C. party circuit, it was Sally Quinn. She and her husband threw these incredible parties. I mean, if you could get an invitation to Ben and Sally's New Year's Eve bash, then you had arrived somehow. And, you know, and I mean, at some of these things, members of Congress show up, or presidents would show up, TV anchors would show up, diplomats, ambassadors. You know, it was a lot of uh, rubbing of shoulders. In fact, she told me on the show that uh, it sounds like fun. That this was work. You have to get all dressed up and walk around in heels and all that. But she wrote this piece where she said that once the pandemic came and she decamped to uh, a place in Southern Maryland that she has, I didn't want to be part of the Washington social scene as I had known it. Somehow it all felt superficial and unimportant and a waste of time. What I had thought was a glamorous and exciting life filled with power and celebrity no longer had any appeal to me. The magic was gone. So we had that conversation. You can see it online on our Facebook or Twitter feeds or my personal pages uh, about what made her change her mind. Now, she says basically that the whole social scene is done. It is done. Uh, She says in part that happened during the four years of Trump because he didn't go out and socialize except at his own hotel. She said the pandemic was also true, changing role of women and the polarized nature of Washington. I mean, this involved, you know, when you go to these parties, there'd be Republicans, there'd be Democrats, there'd be vegetarians, whatever. uh, And people would just, you know, put aside their partisan differences and have a good time. Kind of hard to do when each side now demonizes the other here in Washington. We also talked about this complete debacle for the BBC. Uh, I had uh, Jonathan Hunt, who's based out of Fox's uh, Los Angeles Bureau. Uh, He's a British journalist, and so everything he says sounds 50% more erudite than anything I could possibly say. And he went after Martin Bashir. You know, I talked about this last week. uh, Independent investigation showing that Martin Bashir had faked bank documents, had used other deceptive tactics uh, and breached ethics in order to land this interview back in 1995 with Princess Diana, which caused this sensation because she talked about, you know, how there were three people in her marriage. 
herself, her husband, and Camilla Parker Bowles. Uh, and so two of her sons, William and Harry, issued blistering statements. Williams is on video. He said, it brings incredible sadness to know the BBC's failures contribute significantly to her fear, paranoia, and isolation that I remember from those final years with her. He said the interview holds no legitimacy, should never be shown again, established a false narrative for over 25 years. He said it wasn't just... Uh, a rogue reporter, but the BBC leadership itself. The BBC, as you may know, uh, issued a full, you know, unconditional apology on this. And Jonathan Hunt on my show said that Martin Bashir, who resigned from the BBC before this report came out, was a despicable human being. He went on and on. And, and Bashir told the Sunday Times, well, you know, it was wrong of me to fake the, forge the bank statements. But at the same time, I love Diane. I didn't mean to do her any harm. And he just kind of dismissed that out of hand. All right, let me get down to some current events here. Um, the Washington Post has this piece detracting some attention, uh, and it almost seems to be, I don't know, kind of boasting in nature, saying that Donald Trump is now sliding toward irrelevance, at least online. And I got a big pushback to this thing, uh, because, look, you take anyone, even a former president of the United States, you kick him off Facebook, you kick him off Twitter, you kick him off Instagram. Uh, and then you say, wow, he really isn't getting much traffic online. Well, you, you've basically singled him out, even though he's no longer in office, and says he can't be online. Uh, and so, of course, his traffic would go down dramatically. What are you really proving by saying this? I mean, the idea is Trump is old news. It's yesterday's news. Most people have moved on. Many of his supporters have moved on. But I'm telling you, just based on the news cycle of the last couple of weeks, this is why it's not true. On CNN and MSNBC last week, we talked about this on the show, hour after hour after hour, the lead story was Trump under criminal investigation when all that really happened was, now look, I, I don't say that this is good news for Trump. It could potentially be very bad news for Trump. But all that happened was you had the Manhattan District Attorney uh, investigating in a criminal proceeding the Trump Organization, questions about bank loans and taxes and inflated assets and all that. And you had the state attorney general, Letitia James, they're both Democrats, by the way, investigating many of these same matters on a civil basis. Well, then Letitia James put out this short statement saying, well, we're joining forces with the Manhattan DA and our probe will be criminal too. And the media world goes nuts. But, you know, we didn't learn anything new. There's no new evidence that was made public. There were no new subpoenas of new witnesses that were made public. It was just kind of a bureaucratic thing. Again, I'm not minimizing it, but did it deserve this sort of earthquake status? And then you had the January 6th commission, which I led with. You know, there's a real fierce emotional debate uh, with the media kind of siding with Democrats that, of course, there should be, Congress should name an independent bipartisan investigation to look into what happened in the events leading up to the Capitol riot to make sure nothing like this ever happens again. And the Republicans have dug in and said the Democrats are just uh, playing partisan politics here and we're not going to vote for it. And Kevin McCarthy and Mitch McConnell are getting a lot of negative coverage. Now, why are they doing this? It's because of Donald Trump. Donald Trump put out statements saying this is a Democrat trap and so forth. And then you have the role of Trump uh, as a four. I mean, he's the leader of the Republican Party. If there's another one-term president, defeated one-term president, for whom that has happened in any party, it doesn't immediately come to mind. So going back to this post piece, online talk about him has plunged to a five-year low. 
He's banned or ignored on pretty much every major social media venue. Uh, in the last week, Trump's website, including his new blog, which, by the way, is a pretty archaic kind of thing. You can't like stuff. You can't post comments. You can't share stuff. It's kind of a one-way communications tool. It's not the big social media thing that his people keep promising. In fact, this Washington Post piece quotes an interview I did uh, with his spokesman, Jason Miller, in which he said in two or three months, you know, we're going to unveil this new super-duper um, social media site that's going to be, it's going to change the game totally. It's going to happen in two or three months. Well, that was two or three months ago that Jason Miller told me that. So we'll see. Um, Trump's website, says the Post, attracted fewer estimated visitors than the pet adoption service PetFinder and the recipe site Delish. But then, you know, in the third paragraph, the Washington Post admits Trump is by far the Republican Party's biggest star. Conservative lawmakers and provocateurs are loudly sparring over the importance of loyalty to him uh, ahead of the 2020 midterms. Many of the party's potential 2024 candidates say they will not run if he does. Many of the party's luminaries have traveled to Mar-a-Lago to meet with him. Okay. But online, you know, uh, he's not doing so well because these, you know, woke social media sites, most of them out in Silicon Valley, have kicked him off. So it's just sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy. You literally bar someone from social media and they say, wow, people aren't talking about the guy on social media. Um, the aforementioned Jason Miller telling the Post, a lot of our people aren't on those platforms anymore, meaning Facebook, Twitter, etc. When they kicked off Trump, millions of Trump supporters are no longer on Twitter or Facebook, having rejected these big tech oligarchs for their censoring of President Trump. Now, I don't know that the traffic backs that up, according to the Post story, but he says we're working on the Trump Media Group. It's going to launch this summer. Well, we'll see. It's a hard thing to do. It's a hard thing to launch anything, even if you're Donald Trump, uh, to compete with these just giant, uh, dominant tech platforms like Twitter and Facebook. And look, before he was banned, Trump had 88 million followers on Twitter, 35 million followers on Facebook. Um, and if you take that away, of course, it has an impact. So I think it's an effort to say, sure, his traffic has dwindled tremendously. Um, his blog got 4 million visits uh, in a recent week, about 60% of the traffic that goes to Newsmax, for example. Um, but, you know, it's not a fair fight. It's not a fair measurement. And it doesn't seem to me to have diminished. And here's the key point. The media's interest in Trump. So if you write an article in the Washington Post that says Trump's traffic is down, what are you doing? You're covering Donald Trump. If you write uh, an article or you have segments on television talking about the New York probe, talking about the January 6th commission, talking about a whole bunch of other things, you are doing that because... You know, I, on the air, I said the Trump addiction is as unbreakable as ever. Everybody's traffic and ratings are down. And it's not that there's not plenty to cover when it comes to President Biden. I did it after the buzz taping on this, which will be posted shortly. Um, you know, I mean, Biden had a pretty good week. He got a ceasefire between Israel and the Palestinians. He signed the Asian American Hate Crimes Bill, and the, the only bipartisan piece of legislation to pass. Um, and yet there's something about covering President Biden because he's not um, somebody who pokes people in the eye. He's not on Twitter insulting folks or getting into these Twitter feuds. He doesn't care about winning every news cycle. He doesn't even care about dominating the media very much. 
That seems to be working for him. But that has created a sense of Biden boredom. And Biden boredom is reinforcing Trump addiction. That's what I see as happening. Um, I was on Fox this morning talking about how CNN had a really bad week. Of course, the Chris Cuomo controversy and apology, which we talked about and, and which we talked about on Media Buzz as well. Uh, I also talked to you on the podcast, which is often a sort of a preview of coming attractions of what I'm going to do on the air, um, about this Mideast freelancer who got the, the pink slip from CNN after tweeting, uh, what the world needs today is another Hitler. Uh, abhorrent, says CNN. Yes, I agree with CNN. That is abhorrent. That's not the first time uh, this person has done this. But then over the weekend, what CNN also did was it dumped Rick Santorum, the former Pennsylvania senator, the former 2012 presidential candidate who had a, quite a run in 2012, uh, losing out to Mitt Romney. Um, so Santorum had given this speech, this is back in April, in which he insulted an entire community. He said, we birthed a nation from nothing. Yes, there were Native Americans, but there isn't much Native American culture in American culture. Uh, he went on to say that there was nothing there. What? So, of course, there was a huge uproar. The head of the National Congress of American Indians uh, called him an unhinged and embarrassing racist who disgraces CNN and any other media company that gives him a platform. So, uh, Santorum went on Chris Cuomo's show, and it was kind of like he had to, you know, do damage control. He had to explain this away. He said, oh, I misspoke, you know, I wasn't trying to say that, uh, you know, we treated Native Americans very poorly. But he did not apologize. And as a result, according to the reporting I've seen, you know, individual shows on CNN, individual producers have not wanted to invite him on. Well, there's no point in paying a contributor if none of the shows want that person. At the same time, and I'm not defending anything Santorum said in connection with this, but, you know, Santorum put out a statement thanking CNN, you know, for putting him on for years and saying, look, I knew when I went on I would be delivering opinions very different uh, than what the average CNN viewer gets. But still, I think he absolutely fumbled it by not apologizing for his remarks about Native Americans. But the sad thing for CNN is he was the most prominent Republican on the network. He was one of the few conservative voices on the network. And now he's got a couple of others, uh, not quite as famous as Santorum, also been canned for things they've said or done. Um, and that means you get more and more of a one-sided network. All right. Talking about negotiations in Congress, so both the Washington Post and the New York Times today have pieces about the gridlock on Capitol Hill. And you know how Joe Biden likes to say, it's never a good bet to bet against the United States of America. Well, let me pick up on that. It's never a good bet to bet that Congress is going to get anything done. Because uh, reporters get wrapped up in process. Well, you know, they had another meeting at the White House, so, or there was, you know, the Gang of Eight or the Gang of Ten or the Gang of Seventeen got together and they traded proposals. And the fact is, in almost every case, and this is not just true in the Biden presidency, it was true in the Trump presidency, it was true in the Obama presidency, it was true in the Bush presidency. Uh, if there's a way for a deal to fall apart, it will fall apart. Um, Congress just isn't, it, it, it is so polarized and so gridlocked, and both parties have moved respectively to the left and the right, that it's hard to get anything done. The party that is out of power, as the Republicans are now, just have very little incentive to cooperate. And, you know, if there is a deal, then obviously, you know, both sides can share the credit, but whoever's president gets to say, see, I was able to accomplish some things. So, 
The problem is that the, the, all these news stories get our hopes up. Well, you know, it looks like something may happen. And I'm always like, nah, it won't happen. In the last minute, it'll fall apart. You just wait. And that's what's happening right now. New York Times negotiations in Congress of some of President Biden's key priorities are facing new headwinds, dimming Democrats' hopes they might be able to overcome the partisan gridlock that has come to define Washington. Well, if the hopes were up there, they were always going to be dimmed because getting anything done is just not happening. Remember, the one major thing that Biden has done, the $2 trillion pandemic stimulus bill, only Democratic votes. No Republican votes in the House, no Republican votes in the Senate. And what Biden and the White House were saying was, well, we think this common ground on infrastructure. And there, you know, Biden was at $2.3 trillion. I mean, these are just mind-blowing numbers. He came down to $1.7 trillion, except he took some of those programs that in, in that $500 billion reduction and just said, well, we'll stick them in another bill. So it's not like he's given up on them. The Republicans came out with, a, I think it's an $800 billion bill, which sticks to roads, bridges, tunnels, uh, stuff like that. And Biden has a broader definition of, of So they're still very, very far apart. So that's going nowhere. Police reform, I guess this week is the one-year anniversary of the killing of George Floyd. There should be common ground on certain uh, police reform aspects. No deal, no prospect of a deal anytime soon. January 6th commission, no deal on that. Doesn't look like it's going to happen because you can't get the 60 votes in the Senate without uh, support from Mitch McConnell and a lot of other Republicans. You need 10 GOP votes. Um, any sustained impasse, especially on issues as straightforward as the January 6th commission. See, it's just straightforward, according to the media. There's no, I mean, I personally think it's a pretty good idea. And there was some cooperation on the rules. And then Kevin McCarthy pulled the plug on the guy, the Republican who he had named, to negotiate. Well, almost certainly ratchet up pressure on Senate Democrats who've insisted their party must work across the aisle to broker bipartisan compromises. Uh, same thing in the Washington Post. Um, Biden pushed for Remember that Biden gave the big speech to Congress? Here's some of the things he pushed for. Expanded access to voting. He wanted legislation right away. Immigration. We should argue about it. Let's act. Also, police reform um, because of George Floyd, who I believe Biden is going to meet with the Floyd family at the White House this week. Uh, gun violence. It's time for Congress to act. So in all those things, I mean, this talk, there's, you know, chatter. There may be hearings. There may be meetings at the White House. But nothing's happening. And that means that if Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema agree that the only way they're going to get anything through is, again, through budget reconciliation, which you can only take so far. Uh, so that's the gridlock report for now. Don't go anywhere. More BuzzMeter coming your way in just a moment. I love this story so much. So, you know, the big vaccination push is going on, and it's having a little more success in recent days, in part because several states are having big lotteries. If you're vaccinated... I read in one state, I forget which one, uh, vaccination rates jumped 33% after the state said, you know, if you're vaccinated, you can join this lottery and we'll win a million dollars. Now, the odds of you winning the lottery are pretty, pretty small. But I guess people love lotteries. And so, okay, I'll get the vaccination. You know, I'll get the free beer, the free donuts, and I can enter the lottery. Well, I don't care if people have to be kind of enticed into it like that. I want more people to get it. Uh, I think the... It depends on whether you count people over 18 or over 12. 
as the target audience now, but we're getting closer to 60% of the country have gotten at least one shot. Man, if we could get to that 70%, it would be a great thing for the U.S. of A. But here's the thing I wanted to talk about. Biden administration has gotten behind an effort by dating apps that gives vaccinated people an advantage in hooking up with people. Their badges and potential matches that let you know they're verified and ready for duty. The Biden press office actually sent this out, sent out a memo touting a coordinated uh, effort by Tinder, Hinge, Match, OkCupid, some of these I never heard of, BLK, Chispa, Plenty of Fish, Bumble, Badu, to combat vaccine hesitancy. And uh, in consultation with the White House COVID team, they're offering these new features. For example, uh, let's see. Oh, in support of President Biden's goal of getting 70% of adults at least one shot by July 4th, the largest dating apps in America will launch new features, says the White House. So, for example, Tinder. Members will be able to add stickers to their profile, including I'm vaccinated or vaccine save lives. Vaccinated users will have access to f- free premium content like a super like to help them. Well, you know what's to help them do. <laughs> it's to help them score. I guess that's a polite way of putting it, right? Uh, on OkCupid, datas will be able to add an iVaccinated profile uh, and be featured within OkCupid's Vaccinated Stacks, a new matching system that lets users search by vaccination status. Vaccinated people will get, vaccinated people will get a free boost to move their profile to the front of the dater's stack. Um, now, that actually seems to me to be a more tangible benefit than you know entering some state lottery because... If you're in this special group and you're vaccinated, I, want, I guess you have to provide some proof or I don't know about that. And you can find other people who are vaccinated and maybe you don't want to date somebody who's not vaccinated for those intimate moments. Uh, so all match uh, members will have the op- option to add a vaccinated badge to their profile and get a free boost to help them stand out. So America's dating apps have are heeding their patriotic duty they're going to help you. If you help America by getting the shots, they will help you get a date, make a connection, hook up. I'm running out of uh, euphemisms here. All right. Uh, now, this next topic is a really serious topic, and I have to say I was like most people on this. I thought that the idea that COVID-19 had escaped from a lab in Wuhan, uh, the Chinese scientists had sort of cooked it up inadvertently, was kind of a crazy conspiracy theory. And that's pretty much what the media, how the media have treated it. crazy conspiracy theory. Except right now, it's looking a lot so crazy and not so much of a conspiracy theory. Now, House Republicans put out a report last week saying, you know, this should be investigated, this could be serious. And it was all circumstantial evidence. But when you get a lot of circumstantial evidence, you start to wonder. Now comes the Wall Street Journal with a report that three researchers at the lab at the Wuhan Institute of Virology were hospitalized in November of 2019. That's right before we learned that there was such a thing in COVID. Uh, They were hospitalized with symptoms consistent with COVID-19, according to a previously undisclosed U.S. intelligence report. The journal is saying the details of the reporting go beyond a State Department fact sheet uh, because this was pushed by the Trump administration. And it gives it a little bit more credence. Um, 
Now, I had occasion to look into this. And as I say, you know, I wasn't out there saying we should investigate this. I just kind of figured it was some um, far-fetched theory. But there are a couple of exceptions to this. New York Magazine did a big deep dive. didn't say this would happen. It said, here's all the evidence, pro and con, that we know. But I think a lot of reporters, just like they didn't want to get another crazy town express. Tom Cotton, Republican senator, said three months ago, it was a pretty mild statement. We should at least investigate, given China's history of dishonesty. New York Times headline, Senator Tom Cotton repeats fringe theory of coronavirus origins. Well, it's not so fringe now. And then Nicholas Wade, I followed that byline for a long time, former New York Times science reporter, did a long, long piece uh, earlier this month on Medium, long essay, in which he said, you know, here's the evidence, it's circumstantial, but we should take it seriously. Uh, uh, Nicholas Wade said, the media's lack of curiosity about this has to do with the fact that, one, most journalists lean left and therefore discount anything Donald Trump says. So if Trump talk, calls it the Wuhan virus, the rest of the media says, well, that's, that's nuts. Also, says Nick Wade, science reporters in particular have little skepticism of their sources' motives and view their role as just conveying what the experts say to the unwashed masses. That's a long-time career science journalist saying that. Jim Garrity, National Review, writes today, oh, sure, now it's okay to speculate about a lab leak in Wuhan. Some of us are COVID-origin hipsters, I guess. We were into the lab leak theory before it went mainstream. He talked about um, how he wrote about this some months ago, uh, just saying it should be taken seriously as a possibility. I'm glad the Washington Post editorial board declared yesterday if the laboratory leak theory is wrong, China could easily clarify the situation by being more open and transparent. Uh, His piece ran on April 3rd. One of the most read articles I've ever written, says Garrity, the trail leading back to the Wuhan labs. And And he ends by saying, if this was a lab accident, it would rank among the most consequential mistakes in human history. And who can argue with that? I mean, seriously. Who could argue with that? And it just goes to show you, you know, I mean, there's a lot of crazy stuff floating around. And, um, you know, there's always going to be somebody to push theories that don't have uh, a lot of substance behind them. But I do think the more careful reporters, Garrity is one, Nick Wade's another, this big New York coverage, New York Magazine piece that I went back and read, it was very careful to say, not that this is happening, not to do it as a partisan accusation, but to say we shouldn't rule it out. And after all, I mean, China, the Beijing regime, spent, what was it, four or six weeks denying that the coronavirus was contagious? I mean, you can't rely on that regime. They were covering up. They were trying to make it look like nothing was happening. Uh, it was never going to spread. It all started with a bat. Um, all that's starting to look very different. And it's an interesting coda. Again, this may never be proven. Who knows? But this Wall Street Journal story and a couple of other, um, you know, pieces of reporting and commentary, 18 scientists have written to Science Magazine that we must take hypotheses about both natural and laboratory spillovers seriously until we have sufficient data. And that's, I think, all that some of these contrarians have been calling for. Um, now, would it be useful to know how this thing got started and have, have more careful protocols in the future? I mean, look, there are a lot of labs that are studying 
these types of viruses. And why are they studying them? Because they're trying to do research that would help um, create vaccines if, like, tomorrow there's another new virus that no one's ever heard of that suddenly spreads around the world or spreads even throughout a whole country. So that research is necessary. On the other hand, it's kind of just mind-blowing, kind of just boggles the senses that this pandemic that devastated the world and basically shut down the world economy, that here in the States has killed, you know, more than 570 or 580 million Americans, that for all the progress we've made, and it's so wonderful to see that the number of cases now down by about 90%, uh, so wonderful to see more people getting vaccinated, so wonderful to see the mask mandates finally being repealed and people can walk outside, a lot of people are doing that anyway, and um, just when I was at Fox yesterday morning, it was decided, I guess in conjunction with the building, because Fox doesn't own that building, and the D.C. government, uh, that if you were fully vaccinated, you didn't have to wear a mask in the building. Um, and since I'm fully vaccinated, I took off my mask, and I got in an elevator, and some guy looked at me and said, no, no mask, huh? And I said, well, they've changed the policy here, and I'm fully vaccinated. He said, oh, you didn't know that. It just, it's so much confusion about this. But anyway, it just sort of feels like we're finally coming into a summer where people are going to be able to enjoy themselves and go on vacation, go to the beach, and visit with their relatives without constantly, constantly, constantly worrying. Now, it's not over, and there are still people dying from this every day. I look at the figures. And, you know, we do need to get more of the country vaccinated so it doesn't come back with the colder weather this fall. We've been through those cycles before. Uh, so whether or not this Wuhan stuff turns out to be true or not, we have to try to do everything we can, certainly as Americans, to make sure that now that we've got it more under control, I certainly wouldn't say completely under control, that it stays under control. We don't want to le- relapse of this. We've all been through hell, right? It's horrible. It sucks. All the things that you couldn't do. Uh, grandparents who couldn't see their grandchildren. Um, the decimation to so many small businesses, the restaurant business chief among them. We do not want to let this thing come roaring back. Once again, hope you had a great weekend. Thank you for listening. Apple iTunes on your Amazon device. A lot of places you can get this podcast. And we'll see you all tomorrow with more BuzzFeed. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, in these ever-changing times, you can rely on Fox News for hourly updates for the very latest news and information on your time. Listen and download now at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.